0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our series with women leaders. I'm Ilana Beitel, I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with women who are helping to advance our organization's goals of empowering women in the fields of peace, security, defence, and leadership. Global events just keep on coming wars food crises energy crises heat waves caused by climate change and that's just the obvious selection coming on the back of the COVID pandemic that brought its own crises then there are of course also specific events that stir up interest or cause crises in each country we look to politicians and decision makers as both responsible for the events and the response to them as well as of course the media to convey them But between those two sit a vastly important select group, the spokespeople of a senior figure or an institution who speak to the media and journalists. Spokespeople are the ones who are there when decisions are made and events happen, and they have the trust of both the decision makers and the journalists. They're a very important link. We have with us today, two of the most experienced spokeswomen, past and present in the business, Juana Lungescu, principal spokesperson for the North Atlantic Alliance, NATO, providing strategic advice to the NATO Secretary General, North Atlantic Council, NATO commands, and NATO offices on press, media, and social media, a position she's been in for the past 13 years. She is the first woman to hold this important position, and prior to that, she was a senior journalist. Joining her is Cristina Gayak, formerly Under Secretary general of the United Nations for Communications and Public Information, after serving as Head of Public Relations at the European Union Directorate-General for Information and Communications, and prior to that, a senior journalist. Cristina has also served as Spain's Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs and High Commissioner for the 2030 Agenda of Spain. That is a lot of firepower on both sides, we are pleased to say here. And welcome, ladies, it's absolutely lovely to see you.
1: Hi, Lana, and hey, Christina. Hello <laughs> to everybody.
2: Such an honor to be sharing uh, time and conversation
0: with you all. Absolutely. And let's start, as we always start, with each of you telling us a bit about the background to your illustrious careers. Christina, maybe you start.
2: Okay, well, I have always been uh, in a way in two lines of action. Uh, international affairs, foreign policy, uh, geostrategic issues, and communications. And I have been very lucky in uh, along my career to be able to combine both, uh, to be able to work on foreign issues in international organizations, multilateralism, NATO, the European Union, and the United Nations, but also working on communications using the tool that communications offers to expand uh, the understanding, the knowledge, the reflection on foreign policy. So, uh, my personal career, professional career has been in moving on these parallel two tracks communications and foreign policy. And uh, I've learned a lot but what I have learned in particular is that unless you explain it well and you ensure that people understand what you are doing, it's going to be very difficult to move on. Therefore, communications at the center of uh, the service and also the action that multilateral organizations need in order to ensure that we move along this track of uh, cooperation and progress.
0: And a bit about your career nonetheless?
2: Yes, uh, I have uh, worked uh, at NATO, the European Union, the United Nations, uh, in different positions, and I have also uh, dedicated my last five years uh, working for a national government, the Spanish government, where I've done three different jobs, I've done um, SDGs, sustainable development. I've done foreign policy at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and currently I'm managing EU funds. My beginnings as a professional were as a journalist. Uh, I uh, studied journalism at the university in Spain and I was lucky to have a scholarship uh, to be able to join Columbia University and uh, study foreign policy uh, already four decades ago. So uh, uh, I have had uh, quite a consistent path, many changes, but as as I have said, always along foreign policy and communication.
0: Very interesting, Werner. What is your background? Well, it's. Um...
1: I like to say that I'm I'm an accidental journalist and I'm uh, certainly an accidental mm-hmm. spokesperson. Uh, so for all of you out there who uh, always want to have a plan, that's great. But also stay open to opportunities and stay open to, uh, frankly, whatever happens because uh, our lives are so hard to predict, especially these days. But. Um, I'm now the the longest-serving NATO spokesperson uh, in NATO's history since uh, the official spokesman of the alliance uh, was created in 1962. Um, I'm also the first woman to do this job uh, in NATO's history uh, and uh, the first journalist. Um, I'm also the first person who uh, was born and grew up Behind the Iron Curtain. I was born in in Romania. Um, I'm a German citizen. But I I grew up during the Cold War, uh, literally on the wrong side of Europe, uh, when NATO was uh, the enemy, where uh, I used to listen to enemy radio stations like the BBC, Deutsche Welle, the Voice of America, literally under the blanket for fear that the neighbours would report me to the secret police. So I count myself as extraordinarily lucky uh, to have been able to uh, have this uh, career, which I still find amazing to myself, um, both as a BBC uh, correspondent and then as a NATO spokesperson.
0: Thank you very, very much. That's that's an excellent explanation. Just a, a small thing, Christina. You too grew up at least partly during the Franco dictatorship in Spain, did you not? So did you have the same sort of experience of being on the wrong side and then?
2: You are happening? totally
0: right. Uh, I,
2: I brought up, uh, during the last period of time of the dictatorship, and because of uh, the role that um, young people and uh, professionals were already having in order to, to fight for, for liberties, I remember as it was now when I was a student of journalism with other students of journalism that we founded a newspaper bi weekly. And it was such a, an extraordinary moment. I remember I was in my first year at the university and uh, we were all for the weekends in order to work for that newspaper, the, the students that belong to, to that region. So, yes. Uh, those were very uh, complex moments and I can also remember when as a journalist I was working for the Spanish national TV and Spain was acceding to the European Union at the time, the European community and we moved uh, our TV plateau, TV studio to the border with France and we were telling everybody let's do a special uh, news uh, program uh, because it's so important, uh, Spain joining the European Union at that time, the, the European communities. Yes, uh, I have had a, a short path uh, uh, before the democracy, but uh, I felt journalism was such a key profession uh, in order to consolidate our freedoms, our liberties, and joining the European institutions and NATO.
1: If I may, Lana, I think it's sort of, it gives, I I know Christina from from NATO when I was a journalist uh, and she was advising uh, then Secretary General Javier Solana, um, having been a journalist for EFE before. But I think there is that connection in in terms of the fact that we do not take freedom for granted. We don't take peace for granted uh, and we don't take a free press for granted. So um, I think there is a lot of personal commitment it it, this is really something that's important for us as as people not just as professionals
2: i can only support what you say joanna when i have been a spokesperson in my mind there was always uh, knowing why a journalist uh, uh, says or asks something Mm, because uh, the the impact of the situation in which the journalist operates i remember working as a correspondent in the in the former soviet union and seeing how journalists were struggling to to work in so many different conditions or in the balkans during the wars etc so you are totally right uh, uh, my background and i'm sure your background has an impact on the manner in which we see the importance of free press and the importance of being able to report properly about whatever situation, eh? be it a geopolitical issue or be it a, a local affair.
0: I think that's a very, very important point because I think that is partly, presumably, what also allows you both to be spokespeople because you understand the importance of conveying a message. Could we... Um, Actually, which is something we tend to do with this podcast, could we discuss what a spokesperson actually does? (laughs) <laughs>
1: uh Yeah, well, I can tell you that I, I thought I knew uh, when I was asked to uh, to do this job. Um, actually, I didn't. Uh, I knew NATO very well. I've uh, i, uh, I I'd been covering NATO since uh, 1997. So uh, basically, from then until now, I will have done something like 20 NATO summits. I'd also covered the EU very extensively. I knew uh, some of the, the key people involved. I knew Jamie Shea, who was then uh, the spokesman when I first started. I knew Christina, uh, and they became a great friends. So I thought I knew NATO. But what really surprised me when I actually started the job uh, in November 2010 was uh, that the job is only partly about communicating to the outside world. A lot of it is about coordinating with. Uh, the internal machine, you know, coordinating uh, within the international staff, the international military staff, coordinating with our missions and operations, and also coordinating with our allies, uh, with uh, the delegations uh, at NATO headquarters, uh, and uh, with capitals. So a lot of the work that we do is actually behind the scenes. Uh, it's not in front of the cameras uh, and very few people uh, actually see it. So the coordination, making sure that we all speak with one voice, even though we will all use different words, uh, that is absolutely key uh, for being a spokesperson for a multinational organisation uh, such, uh, such as NATO. But it's not something that's very obvious uh, when you first look at the job.
2: I remember the first day Joanna came as a new (laughs) BBC correspondent uh, at the NATO press briefings. And uh, for me, it it was uh, such a sign of a solid journalist, professional, always asking good questions, sometimes very difficult questions, and... uh, what you did, Joanna, as a journalist during, for example, very difficult moments, the Kosovo War, um, you know, always impacted me. And I think that professionalism, you have brought it as a NATO a spokesperson, as the chief NATO spokesperson. And if I can't follow your argument about the preparations, the internal work that uh, is not seen, you know, in communications, the less you improvise the better sometimes it seems it's very natural the communication but there is a lot behind and the more we incorporate social media and different media uh, to the traditional uh, newsreels uh, tv newspapers etc the more you need to prepare and the more the dangers to go astray because there has been not enough linking and not enough coordination, etc. So I just uh, take off my heart and bow to what you've done because keeping the alliance together in terms of communications in the current extremely complex moments, you know, that means that there are a lot of very good professionals led by an extremely extraordinary spokesperson.
0: Christina, why do you think that Um, and this is true to both of you, why can't the Secretary General of NATO or the Prime Minister of a country just speak for themselves? Why do they need a spokesperson?
2: First of all, because uh, they represent the ultimate uh, person in the institution. So their image needs to be preserved to very specific moments, many of them. I'm not saying there has to be, not to be access, but you need to ensure that they come out when there is a need, when there is a solemn moment, a very important, and a spokesperson needs, does more than just a vertebrate what the organization is doing or what the organization is planning to do. So uh, you need both. The more compenetrated they are, the better, because when they see the spokesperson, media, uh, journalist, uh, uh, whoever follows, knows that that's the voice of the of of the ultimate responsible. It's a fundamental role, and uh, I truly believe that uh, there are. Uh, um, regular moments that the spokesperson is is extraordinarily useful and it's fine and it's there and you don't need more. But the ultimate, the secretary generals, the top ministers, the prime ministers uh, have to come out when they have to come out.
1: The Secretary General in NATO certainly is the uh, the principal spokesperson uh, for the alliance. So mm. it's it's him, uh, it's Jens Stoltenberg. It's not me. Uh, I'm there as as an advisor. I'm there also. As, as the voice uh, of NATO for for the occasions when uh, the secretary general can't uh, be be out there uh, and so I'm there to advise uh, and support him as well as the the whole North Atlantic uh, uh, council uh, and our military colleagues um, so in a way the the two uh, jobs uh, go hand in hand um, i mean it's it's often said that uh, you know the principal the Secretary-General, in our case, is there for the good news uh, and the spokesperson is there for the bad news. Um, it doesn't always uh, work like that, but uh, certainly when I first started working with Jens Stoltenberg uh, back in, in 2014, before we decided uh, that we would, uh, we would continue, um, because I had been appointed by his predecessor, Anders Fogh Rasmussen, uh, I told him, Secretary-General, I will tell you things that you do not like. Uh, and I may advise you uh, not to say things that you may want to say. So we can only uh, work together on that basis. And to his credit, he said, uh, absolutely, uh, i listen to, to what you say. And he, he's always done that. And then, of course, he takes his own decisions.
2: That's very important, Joanna. what you mentioned. When you work as a spokesperson of uh, an institution, and in your case, uh, supporting the work of the chief a spokesperson of the organization, you need to have this uh, trust, this uh, capacity to say, as, as you say, as you just have said, things that are not uh, easy. And this reinforces definitely the conviction. the communication because there has been strong discussion between the two of you between your team and between the team of of the secretary general Uh, you need to work in this uh, totally trust uh, environment to ensure that uh, uh, the decisions that are taken on such a key issue as communication are are the the adequate ones
0: each of the prime ministers who sit around the north atlantic council or indeed in the EU around the table of the 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 council or security council, whichever, also has their own spokesperson. How do you actually um, ensure that everyone is speaking through the same idea or to the same set of agreed principles, for example, that everyone sitting around the table may agree upon, but then what happens if you as the spokesperson of the organization says one thing And then other spokespeople of specific characters or politicians go around and say something else.
1: Look, I think uh, heads of state and government uh, uh, will always have the, uh, the, the ultimate uh, decision-making power to, to say what they want to say. And obviously, each, uh, each country will have uh, its own national interests. Uh, and after all, we are an alliance of democracies with, uh, right now, 31 countries, all with very different histories, very different geography, very different political parties um, in government. But what unites us in NATO uh, is... Uh, our commitment to defend and protect each other. And that's where we've always been united, despite all the differences uh, that we may have uh, and that we will uh, no doubt continue to to have in in the years to come. But ultimately, I think everybody also knows when it comes to NATO that our unity is also our strongest message. It's our strongest message of deterrence and it's our strongest message of defence. If we stand together, then no adversary can try to, to break us up or to attack one of us. And I think what has been absolutely remarkable has been uh, the, the unity uh, shown by NATO and the whole uh, community of like-minded uh, countries in defence of the rules-based international order following uh, the the launch of, uh, of Russia's full-fledged invasion uh, against Ukraine on the 24th of February last year. I think this is something... That President Putin did not expect. Um, and it shows uh, the, the big strategic mistake he has made. Our unity remains uh, our strongest asset, both in what we say, but also in what we do. And obviously, we will work together, uh, not just with the heads of state and government, but also with the ambassadors. Uh, who uh, sit in permanent session in the North Atlantic Council in NATO HQ with all our colleagues, our communicators, both civilian and military, both here in Brussels, but also in the respective capitals. We have our networks. uh, we uh, We exchange messages on different platforms. Uh, I have uh, started something uh, which is known as the playbook internally, where we have all our key messages, which we regularly update with the links to all the key press conferences, um, interviews, uh, uh, upcoming events, so that everybody is on the same page. So we have different ways, rolling scripts. Uh, We share our our lines uh, and our plans, including also on uh, on social media, um, just to, to make sure that we are aligned as much as we can be, as I said, in an alliance of 31 uh, democracies. But it takes a lot of coordination um, amongst uh, ourselves, but ultimately, we all know we have the same goal. So, you know, everybody's working very hard at it.
2: I, I want to underline what Joanna said about the the uh, role of coordinating the messages and ensuring that uh, uh, what you mentioned the playlist contains the messages and at the same time playbook. respecting uh, the play the play, playlist uh, <laughs> the playbook uh, um uh, correcting uh, uh, and, and ensuring that the uh, leaders uh, are sovereign and they they will uh, move uh, uh, along their um, interests but as well the, the NETA and the conviction to, to work united at NATO. This is something that when I moved from NATO to the European Union, really uh, shocked me. After a NATO meeting, there was always a message based on what unifies the community, the member states. After a EU meeting, things are a little bit different and you see the national interests either reflecting through... Uh, financial issues or through specific policies become more present and there is always a national winner so you you really need at the European Union to be uh, uh, aware that the perspectives uh, tend to be more diverse uh, than NATO in particularly in being made public so this is an approach that um, traditionally happens, uh, you uh, with uh, different positions, including the Commission role, which the Commission att- is a tractor of um, uh, strong uh, policies, but then member states uh, fight with each other and including the European Parliament. So the coordination the unanimity here at the EU level is much more complex. And then if I add the United Nations, this becomes <laughs> even more complicated because there the divisions, North, South, Global North, Global South, are, uh, more least developed countries or uh, regional positions, etc. So yes, uh, uh, speaking... Uh, on behalf of organizations of these different natures, eh? European Union, uh, NATO or the United Nations takes uh, uh, a lot of coordination. When I went to work for the the United Nations, it was the peak of the Ebola crisis. And uh, we had a strategic communications meeting very early in the morning um, because you remember it was uh, not the type of pandemic we just had with COVID, but it was an extremely devastating problem uh, for uh, uh, West Africa and with the dangers of expanding everywhere else. And we had tremendous responsibility at UN uh, level uh, of uh, supporting the fight uh, against Ebola. And the complications, of the disparities between the Africans, the West Europeans, the East Europeans, et cetera, made it more difficult. So uh, the nature of communications uh, is also uh, different depending on the organization which you are serving. Don't you agree, uh, Johanna?
1: Yeah, I think having the common goal and understanding what that common goal is uh, and and striving for it together, being part of something bigger than oneself uh, and then any one nation, understanding that the challenges, the security challenges that we face right now and for the foreseeable future are much bigger uh, than uh, what any one country or indeed one continent can tackle on its own. I think it's that understanding of the bigger picture and having that common goal uh, that helps us also as communicators uh, achieve that that unity of message. NATO ultimately is about peace, security, freedom Mm -hmm. for one billion people in Europe and North America. And we've managed to to keep that uh, peace and freedom for almost 75 years now. Uh, and that is what we're working towards. So it's stepping back uh, in a way, Ilana, beyond the, you know, day-to-day crises, the events uh, that will always roll on relentlessly uh, and thinking, OK, what is this about ultimately? This is so important. We we have to, to work together uh, to convey that very clear message of unity. Yeah.
0: I think that you're both raising excellent points, um, though I would say that one of the things that I find interesting is, Christina, you're pointing out in many ways that NATO, it's not a single issue, but it is nonetheless a very focused issue organization. The EU is a much Fundamental. broader one. And which deals in a lot more policy. it has more, I don't know if it has more institutions, because in NATO, you also have the, the military mm-hmm. side and you have various commands and you have various states with different issues, but nonetheless uh, you have many institutions and you have a lot more money involved for Mm -hmm. the organization as opposed to the implications of money which is what which is both an advantage and a disadvantage yes exactly (laughs) and then in the un you have 192 nations Mm -hmm. and even though the security council is only 15 with five permanent members it is nonetheless 192 nations that pass um, decisions so Each, I suspect, brings its own complexity, its own uh, different way of looking at things. But nonetheless, the need to communicate remains very, very central to all of them. And I would actually like to ask something else of Christina, and I'd love your perspective also, Juana, which is, um, do you think that all the organizations um, are successful at it?
2: Well, uh, I think that you'll try. Uh, uh, having worked uh, the the three of them, uh, they mm-hmm. all try very hard. I think with different levels of success. Um, I think it also depends on the political leadership, uh, uh, the strength of the political leadership. We see a very strong NATO Secretary General. We see a very strong President of the European Commission. I I am. Uh, uh, a very uh, passionate defender of uh, Madame von der Leyen. I think she she is solid and and she uh, speaks uh, clearly and, and I think she's done a good job. Uh, I think the case of the UN is so complex, so complex because multilateralism is so weak at this very moment and uh, we don't see issues uh, that uh, can really uh, move forward uh, because the member states, uh, Ilana, you mentioned uh, the um, Security Council. Look, the Security Council is so divided. So the role of the Secretary General is is so complicated. Um, These days we are seeing how the United Nations might not even have an agreement to export uh, the uh, grain from Ukraine between Russia and the Ukraine due to Putin's position. We haven't seen the last words yet, huh? but it doesn't look very likely. Anyway, the United Nations is very, very fragile because multilateralism demands a lot of uh, efforts to agree, uh, and now we don't see them. Huh? In fact, the, the terrible war that Putin has launched is a a direct attempt against multilateralism. And this makes communication very difficult, very, very difficult and very complex to project one position, to project a a set of values, to project a a set of goals. And then on top of that, if we add, and I'd like to hear the position of uh, Ioana on this issue, if you add the social media mess in which we are in terms of uh, fake news, in terms of uh, very responsible use of the of the social media and how to regulate it. I think this this becomes extremely complicated. Sometimes I wonder myself, how I would have been able to work with panoply of uh, social media, basically s- spreading lies. Huh? I don't know what do you do on that, Johanna. Um,
1: Well, we started uh, actually working uh, to to counter disinformation mainly uh, since 2014, since the illegal Mm -hmm. annexation of Crimea. But of course, as you know, disinformation uh, has been uh, with NATO since uh, since its very start, because Mm -hmm. we see a lot of the the old uh, Soviet methods uh, still remain uh, in terms of of the overall uh, approach. But i think in terms of disinformation uh, certainly our own approach uh, has uh, has also evolved uh, over the, over the years uh, not just because of the uh, the explosion in terms of social media platforms uh, citizen journalists uh, geolocation uh, the availability uh, of uh, of uh, uh, satellite imagery which is very different from where we were back in 2014 um so uh, our approach, certainly when it came to uh, Russia's plans uh, to launch its full-fledged uh, invasion uh, of Ukraine, was not just to debunk, but to pre-bunk. To uh, And we did declassify. We declassified uh, an unprecedented amount uh, of, uh, of information uh, on uh, Russia's intentions, on Russia's plans, on Russia's military buildup, uh, which we used to call on Russia to pull back from the brink, but also to show them that we knew what they were doing, we were watching very closely, and also to prepare our public opinions, because uh, if uh, they were less prepared about Russia's intentions, they would have been more inclined to believe Russia's lies. And so uh, what we have seen uh, since uh, the 24th of February uh, last year is also an, an unprecedented increase, uh, both in support for NATO, uh, mm-hmm. a decrease in uh, public trust among our own audiences uh, in Russia, also in China, by the way, and we've also seen uh, NATO um, uh, in the news and NATO, uh, uh, in 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 the public view, like never before. I think uh, certainly in terms of our workload, the number of uh, interviews, speeches, media queries, accreditation requests um, have uh, reached unprecedented levels, absolutely unprecedented levels. And so, for instance, for the Vilnius summit, uh, which uh, just took place uh, this this month, we've had. Um, in terms of our media coverage, uh, a reach of uh, over 3 billion people in over 90 countries. Uh, we had 2,000 journalists accredited, uh, almost 9 million impressions in social media uh, for our flagship accounts. Uh, so this shows you uh, the amount uh, of interest, the amount of awareness. But of course, this is, uh, you know, you can never take it for granted. It's it's day-to-day uh, work. This is
2: amazing, uh, Joanna amazing because that means as as you mentioned before lots of coordination lots of uh, uh, meetings lots of press lines Uh, i can only you know take off my hat uh, to see what uh, the manner in which you have been able to to work because communication has been part of making nato more united and stronger and, and, and forceful in, fr- in front of the, the aggression, you, all, you know as something I always care is about uh, how to help journalists that um, are facing lots of inputs. They have quickly uh, to take decisions on what to retransmit, what to broadcast, what to put in their stories, and uh, the complexities of the process of uh, uh, processing information and how we the people in the institutions are uh, there to support in, their, in this process for the journalist to, to send a story and then to ensure that uh, the content is there because in general, I am convinced that the journalists want to report um, fairly want to report the truth, want to have a variety of sources, and they are confronted to terrible, terrible, misguided and um, interested wrong messaging. So uh, this is is really hard. That's why a strong comms team that, uh, you know, comes out uh, with um, good information, with solid uh, and checked uh, details is, is critical.
1: Yeah, we we are a very small team uh, actually, but I think uh, it is the power of teams, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, you know everything that I mentioned, and, and as you know uh, from from your time at uh, at NATO, you know the people working here are tremendously dedicated, professional, uh, very uh, very very committed. Uh, so I think you know, It's it's a fantastic uh, team and it goes beyond the press office, obviously, the public diplomacy division and everybody uh, working together also with our colleagues in the military and our colleagues in, in the nation. So, you know, I often tell people, okay, we're facing disinformation. These are tough times. But if you look at all of us together, the power that we have, you know, not just the people working in NATO HQ, but all of us together, the networks that we have, uh, the, the influence that we have, I think that is tremendous. We just need to remember it and to, and to use it. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's also very important. But, I, yeah, the point that you made on, on journalists uh, and also mm-hmm. the point that Ilana made at the very start, you know, this is about being a spokesperson. is about having the trust uh, of the decision makers and uh, being a trusted advisor, but also the trust of the journalists. And I think for both you, Christina, and for, and for me, having been a journalist, you know- Obviously, mm-hmm. once a journalist, you're always a journalist. So you all you know the pressure, which I think now is perhaps worse than ever on journalists uh, with a continual deadline, working for multiple platforms uh, in, in in different ways, under a lot of financial and editorial pressure. Mm-hmm. So I think understanding the pressures that they are uh, they are working under, uh, trying to help, mm-hmm. sometimes it may be just by you know having to, you know answering very quickly on. Whatever platform, the query comes, because it may be Twitter, mm. it could be Instagram, it could be LinkedIn, mm. it, it could be a plain email uh, or a phone uh, or a phone call. So just trying to respond as quickly as possible. Um, uh, and journalists tell us that they really appreciate that. And also being honest, because. I, uh, you know, working at NATO, a lot of the time I will not be able to tell people everything that I know. I will not be able to tell journalists everything that I know. But I will try to tell them as much as I can, and also I will not bullshit them. I will not spin them. Uh, If I don't know, I don't know. Or if I can't say something, I will tell them that. So then, you know, they can perhaps try another source, but uh, I will try not to waste their time. And the other thing is previewing. Uh, as you mm-hmm. know, as we all know, it's not just about uh, what you decide; it's also about previewing what you decide, because often that's what journalists are interested in: is telling the story before the, the story actually happens. Once it happens, it's perhaps less interesting. So mm-hmm. we do a lot of previews, a lot of uh, a lot of briefings, uh, to an extent which was certainly, I think, not done when when you were working at NATO. I think that's something that uh, people have have realised that's how we can help journalists uh, do do their work and be better prepared to tell the story.
2: All the means and ways you can put at the service of who is going to have to present information, because you can do communications directly a lot, you oh. do them a lot, but uh, you need uh, this journalist, this commentator, this person that is going to, to, to lead. And unfortunately, they need to, to be able to assimilate lots of things. And the role that you do is, is fantastic. Uh, frankly, sometimes I'm, I'm, when I see journalists in the front lines in the Ukraine, how they are able to contrast information. And sometimes you mention it, the financial burdens. Uh, we see now this is not a profession that is uh, well paid at all.
0: Ladies, we're moving rapidly towards at the end of this show. Just one last very small comment from you both. Juana, I know that you are stepping down soon. Mm-hmm. At the end uh, of August. Christina, I know that potentially you're moving on too. What happens next for both of you? Christina? Well,
2: I, I don't know. Um, you know, Spain is in the midst of an election campaign. Very important election because... Uh, uh, we have uh, put a lot of uh, uh, policies, uh, uh, transitions, digital transition, ecologic and, and uh, energy transition, and lots of uh, programs uh, to support equality and inclusion. So we don't know. Uh, but it will always be in my mind, in particular now that I have accumulated many years, uh, something that WISE does, which is. Uh, to work with the younger generations. I don't know what I'm going to do, but uh, I will try as hard as possible to be in contact with the younger generations, be it of journalists, be it of uh, uh, officials, be it of uh, uh, future diplomats, to ensure that we are able to support these uh, professionals, women in particularly, to enter into a phase of their professional lives uh, with uh, uh, at least uh, the empathy and with the door open to continue supporting them. I, I, I had a lot of support during my professional life from friends, colleagues, uh, etc. And I think mentoring and supporting the younger generations is critical. So kudos to boys, and always happy to support.
1: Yeah, like like Christina, I don't have any particular uh, plans except uh, perhaps, uh, you know, looking forward to to being on a holiday where I don't have to to comment from the beach on the latest uh, uh, criticism of NATO by presidential candidate Donald Trump um, or having to deal, sadly, as has often been the case with uh, another terrorist attack. So, uh, you know, just taking a bit of time to to think uh To sleep to have lunch uh the sort of normal things that uh, that people do i think that's uh that's going to be that's going to be good you know read and write uh and yes you know i'd be uh, delighted to 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 stay to stay in touch and uh, i'm i'm really very very happy to to look around here at NATO and to see how many young women are here mm-hmm. uh, doing uh, some some really extraordinary jobs whether it's uh, you know dealing with uh, cyber defense uh, with defense planning uh, with nuclear policy with uh, climate change um, so I think we have a lot of, of talented uh, young people and young women uh, and uh, and I'm sure they'll go far I think it's really important to involve more women uh, in in this uh, area of uh, security uh, and defense Uh, and thank you uh, Ilana thank you Christina and thank you to WISE for everything that you do
0: Um, I really don't think we can improve on such wonderful words so that's a wrap on this episode of WISE Brussels Voices thank you so much to our guests Juana Lungesco and Christina Gayak, we'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions please continue the discussion with us at WISE Brussels on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn And if you haven't done it yet, subscribe to Wise Brussels Voices and listen to all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast application. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Milana Betel with the wonderful Florence Ferrando. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned for more great conversations.